This message is a ministry of Plainville Baptist Church. www.plainvillebaptistchurch.org Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come before you today knowing that we are a chosen people a people that you have called, a people that is to be holy, set apart for you, sanctified. Father, we recognize full well that you are the one who sanctifies. You are the one who saves us. You are the one who gives us life and breath. And Father, you work all things together for good to those who have, you have called according, who love you and have called according to your purpose. Father, we look forward to your sanctifying work this morning. We pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts. We pray that your spirit would move through our pastor, move through our congregation, and that we would be a little more holy understanding our position in Christ, understanding what you have called us to, that that purpose would become bigger in us. Father, help us to hear from you today. I ask this in your son's name, amen. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter three. Luke chapter 3, tonight we're going to see the concern that Jesus has for his people in, Luke, in John 17. This Wednesday we start in our group at the Annex, um, How We Got Our Bible, a six-week series on how, how do we have what we have in our hands today? How did we get this Word of God and how did God bring it to us and preserve it? Let's read, starting in verse 1, Luke chapter 3. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he came to all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the word of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him and saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts as to John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. As we look into the gospel of Luke over the next few weeks, as we continue in our weekly word material. What Luke attempts to do in this gospel is be the apologist. He's written the apologist's gospel, and he lays out the account of Jesus Christ and the early church through both Luke and Acts in a manner to defend the faith before those who might tend to be skeptical. He's writing to a man as you see it in chapter 1, a man named Theophilus. And he gives him the title, Most Excellent Theophilus, uh, a term reserved for governors and kings and other dignitaries. So Luke was writing to this individual, Luke as the learned man, reaching out to other learned men, not unlike the way that Mark wrote to the common man, or Matthew wrote to the Jewish person. So God had equipped Luke specially in this way to write to those. Luke was prepared for this by God. He was a doctor, a medical doctor. Paul calls him the beloved physician in Colossians 4.14. And he says as he describes this, this material, he searched out everything carefully. He may have interviewed eyewitnesses and other servants of the Lord, and he may also have looked at other documents that were available to him at the time and used those to lay out his account. He probably also spoke with the Apostle Paul since he followed with him. He was one of his co-workers. The Lord put in Luke's heart the desire to make careful investigation of the matters and lay them out in consecutive order as he saw fit so that other seekers, other learned individuals, Theophilus and other people like him might find the exact truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That word that Luke uses, exact truth, means that, that which is safe or secure. The truth had been safeguarded by the Lord, and Luke made sure that as he wrote that down, that was the case. And so as we see in, these, in this chapter, in chapter 3, the beginning of the 
ministry of John the Baptist, we see the historical setting in verses 1 and 2, the historical setting. And Luke, being the historian, the apologist, lays out the truthfulness of the account. Uh, it goes back into uh, histor- historical time frame in which John the Baptist ministered. Um, he was instructing Theophilus. You can look this up. You can see where in history this was taking place so that Theophilus or anyone else being able to trace this back could see the veracity of the story. And so his purpose was to make sure that they understood the time frame in which it was held. It wasn't made up. It was in this particular time in history, verifiable by all around. As a matter of fact, up until recent history, skeptics believe that Luke was wrong in some matter of uh, point. Here in in verse 1, it says that uh, Licinius was the tetrarch of Abilene. And they said, no, 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 no. Licinius lived at a different period. He lived much earlier. He couldn't have been the tetrarch of Abilene. And, And recent history has shown... Archaeology has shown they found an inscription of Licinius who was Tetrarch of Abilene, not the one previously who was the ruler over Syria. And there were two different Licinius's. It was a common name, just like it is today. Uh, Okay, maybe not. But Again, the accuracy of Luke was seen here in this historical setting. And this places John the Baptist's ministry smack into the reign of Tiberius. Caesar Tiberius began his reign about 14 AD. This places John's ministry 15 years later, about 29 AD. And Luke describes him as a carrier of the word. This was significant because for 400 years, there had been no prophets to Israel. Since Malachi, there was no one else speaking for God. And John comes on the scene, and it was an amazing thing because this time of silence was no longer. He was a carrier of the Word of God. He brought the Word of God to them. But also it says that he came as the forerunner for the Messiah. You see, there are many prophets in Israel. We can name many of them, Elisha and Elijah and Samuel and Moses and Zechariah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, dozens of prophets, even those ones that weren't written down. God brought to Israel to bring them back to God. But there was only to be one forerunner. And that was John's privilege. He was the forerunner of the coming Messiah. He would be the one who would prepare the way for Jesus to come. And so in verses 3 to 6, after looking at this historical setting, looking at John the Baptist as the Word, bringing the Word of God and being the forerunner, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, We see his baptism and message in verses 3 to 6. There are two key aspects to John's baptism and message. John says, or Luke is describing that John's message and his baptism are related. They're, They're one in the same, if you would. They're two parts describing what John is doing. And these two aspects of John's message and baptism, first of all, is a call to repentance. 
It's a call to repentance. It says, he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was proclaiming this baptism of repentance because baptism was a sign of association. It's saying, I am identifying myself with this message that is being proclaimed, the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism didn't forgive sins. It was a call to repent in preparing my way for the Messiah who would forgive sin. And so as John was calling for this preparedness, this readiness to receive Messiah. There are two questions that I think you should ask yourself as you read through this passage, as you look at these verses. First of all, what did John mean by repentance? What did John mean by repentance? And secondly, in what way was he calling people to repent? What does John mean by repentance? And in what way was he calling people to repent? First of all, John's baptism, his meaning of repentance, is found in verse 4. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. So, what is this? Repentance is a change of mind concerning something. And he's calling Israel to repent regarding the coming Messiah. He is coming. You need to build a road for him. That's what he's saying. You need to build a road for him to get here. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every hill, every ravine will be filled in. Every hill and mountain brought low. Do you remember? I don't remember it, but some of you probably do. In the 50s, when the interstate system was being uh, developed, they had to cut through road, uh, mountains. They had to build up valleys because they had a, a criteria. You could only have so many degrees of movement to the left or right or up or down over a certain number of miles. And so they planned that all out. They had to bring mountains and valleys low and bring up the ravines, the va- uh, uh, mountains and hills low and, and the valleys and ravines up. And they, and they did that carefully. That's what John is calling. If you're to be ready for the Messiah, you need to build a road for him. But this wasn't a physical road. See, the Romans had already taken care of that. As a matter of fact, if you walk through Israel today, you can still see mile markers, Roman mile markers along the roads. They're still there. Now, the Romans prepared the roads for Messiah, the physical roads. John is saying, you need to prepare a spiritual road to be ready to receive Messiah. And so, in what way am I supposed to change my mind? How is that to be? And the picture, as as John gives here, of building this road, we'd say it this way. There is, an, an, there is an internal change that needs to be embraced. There's an internal change that needs to be embraced. Repentance is embracing an internal change in the heart. And I, and I see it in two ways here as John lays this out. First of all, 
to understand there is no one righteous. In verse 5, he says that every ravine will be filled in, every mountain and hill will be brought low, the crooked made straight, and the rough roads smooth. No one is righteous. Every hill and mountain made straight, every ravine brought up. Two groups of people in this passage that John lists. Number one, those people who are proud, the self-made, those who boast in their moral accomplishments believe certainly they are more entitled to salvation than others. These are the mountains and the hills that think they are closer to God because of what they have done, because of their moral uprightness. They need to come down. If you're to be ready for the Messiah, you need to be brought down. You need to be knocked down. Every mountain and hill brought low. It's suggestive of the Pharisee in Luke 18 who goes to the temple to pray. And he says, I thank you, God. I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, or even like this electrician. Thank you, God. I fast twice in the week. I pay tithes of all that I get. He was a hill that needed to be knocked down. Are you a hill that needs to be knocked down? John tells them in verse 8 that they cannot rely on who they were or what they had accomplished. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. I say to you, God is able to raise up these stones to be children of Abraham. No, that's what John is describing. John is describing the Jewish people's pride. They prided themselves on three things. Their religion their race, and their region. Their religion, their race, their region. By race, they understood they were children of Abraham. He was the father of faith. He was the friend of God. And we're his children. That counts for something, right? John says, no way. God can raise stones up to be children of Abraham. Your who your ancestor was does not make you better. Or God handed down by my, my religion. God handed down the law through Moses so that, so that they could have access to God by the temple. But Paul said in Romans chapter 2, if, if you don't keep the law perfectly... Your circumcision is counted as if you were a complete heathen. Your religion matters nothing. And then they prided themselves on the land. All the promises to Abraham, the promises that the whole world would be blessed in them were contingent on being in the land. And they were in the land. And they were proud of it. But Jesus, when He came to them, they said, we're free! Jesus said, no, you're slaves to sin. 
You're slaves to sin. The slave does not remain forever. You're not going to be here in this land if you're a slave of sin. You know, they, all these things they prided themselves on, their race and their religion and their region counted as nothing. But what about you? What about you? Are you trusting the fact that you're a Baptist or some other denomination? Or, no, no, brother, I'm non-denominational. I'm sorry. You have a misplaced hope. You have a misplaced hope if you're trusting in who you belong to. Unless it's God Himself. Or maybe you say, I'm an American. I mean, America's a Christian nation, right? So I'm okay. God bless the USA, right? I fought for my country. Certainly, I have a place in heaven. I've heard somebody say that before. Somebody told me that before. I fought for my country. God's going to accept me. Sorry. Wrong. Three X's. Not true. How about your family of origin? Your family of origin. You know, my ancestors were Scottish Covenanters. And we fought for God. Or my, my ancestors were French Huguenots who were persecuted by the people, we, we had a flea. There was a massacre, St. Bartholomew's Day. They killed many of us. Or, like I heard one lady say, my parents and grandparents helped missionaries. Certainly, I have a place in heaven. All of those are misplaced hopes. Every hill must be made low. Whatever you are trusting in, except Messiah, must be put aside. John said, you need to humble yourself if you are to receive from God in repentance. But there's another group here in this passage. Every valley, every ravine must be filled in. The other group, those whose Lives are so immoral or so wicked or perverted, they believe they couldn't come to God. They couldn't be accepted by God. They've lived lives so despicably, they're without hope. And usually the other side, the mountains and hills, the proud, self-righteous people help others to think that. (laughs) Yeah, you're not getting there. Like, Like the Pharisee did to the tax collector. Yeah, buddy. I'm glad I'm not like you. And yet, in a sense, these also who think they can't be saved because they're too bad have a pride about them as as well because they won't believe God's Word that says, no, you can come. You can come in repentance also. 
But instead, many say, no, I'm just going to stay in my own path, which is just a convenient excuse not to come to God. No, no, no. The valleys and ravines need to be filled in. If you're going to come to God, you can be forgiven. It doesn't matter how gross your behavior has been. You can be forgiven. If you come to me in repentance, God says. And Paul describes that in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. There's no one who cannot come to the Savior. So John says there's these two groups. The hills and mountains, the valleys, the ravines. Which are you? Are you the proud mountain that needs to humble yourself to recognize you're no better than anyone else? Or are you on the same, that you are on the same level as even those despised? You have to understand that if you're going to receive the grace of God. Or are you that wicked one, just willing to stay where you are because your pride is telling you, you know more than God? The second part of John's message is this, Messiah is coming and he must be received. In verse 6, he says, all flesh will see the salvation of God. All flesh will see the salvation of God. This harkens back to the previous chapter in Luke chapter 2. Simeon was at the temple, the prophet, and he sees Mary and Joseph with the baby Jesus. The Holy Spirit had told him he would not die until he saw Messiah. And he takes this baby Jesus in his arms and he says, Oh God, I have seen your salvation. Messiah is Salvation. Jesus is salvation. And John is saying Messiah is coming and he must be received. All flesh will see the salvation of God. Jesus Christ is salvation. He is God coming into the human race. And this internal change must be embraced through faith. It is He that accomplished eternal redemption for us. It is His work on the cross that accomplished that. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But you must have faith that you are not righteous before God, but can be made righteous by God. It comes through faith in the Messiah who is salvation. And so that's John's message and baptism But there's another aspect of this, and John describes it. With repentance, there is external change expected. So there needs to be an internal change embraced, and when you embrace that by faith, there's an expected external change. When these people were recognizing John's message, they said, so what should we do? 
I've repented. I'm making myself ready for the Messiah. I'm waiting for Him to come so I can believe in Him. So what do I do? And John addresses three different groups, and I think this, these are three related aspects to external change that's expected when you receive Messiah. External change is reflected in the internal reality of truth that you have believed and embraced. When you believe in Messiah and you receive Him, there's this external change that's expected. And John gives these three ways. He, the crowds asked him, what would, what would we do? What should we do? And he says, whoever has two tunics, let him give to one who has none. And likewise, whoever has food, to do the same. I think we could sum that up with one word, generosity. Generosity. That's freedom from hoarding. <gasps> There's shortages everywhere. What are we going to do? We're going to give. Huh? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm going to BJ's and getting two of those big packs of toilet paper. No, generosity is the opposite of hoarding. It's a freedom from hoarding. And you know what it reflects? It reflects the truth that Jesus said in Luke, freely you've received freely give. How did you come into salvation? How did, you re- how did you get it? You received it freely. It was paid for by someone else. And if we understand that, this is what John is describing. If you understand that, if you've come into Christ and you understand you've come into Him freely, then it ought to cause us to say, freely, I'm going to give as a picture of that grace that I've received. Generosity. I've been given this great gift of God and out of gratitude for His graciousness to me, I'm going to be generous to others. But the second group comes to Him, it's the tax collectors, and they say, and and Rabbi, what, what should we do? And He says, collect no more than what's required. Collect no more than what's required. And the word that we could use to sum this up would be contentment. Contentment. You see, recognizing God's sovereignty and His direction and control over your life. I don't need to manipulate my own situation to my advantage. That stems from understanding God's abundant provision of riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You see, the, the Roman world, in the Roman world, the, the tax rate was somewhere between 3 and 5%. Some of you are saying, praise God, I wish I could go back there. But somewhere between 3 and 5%. But the tax collectors had a little bit on the top. So John is telling them, no, 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 collect what you're supposed to, get your pay, be content with that. See, this comes also out of the repentance. These tax collectors recognized they needed Messiah. That's why I think they were so ready to receive Him when He did come, like Matthew and others, his friends, like Zacchaeus. Contentment. If you realize what God has given you in Christ, the eternal riches and glory by Christ Jesus, provision for you, you can be content in Him. Regardless of what's going on around you, 
resting in what Christ has done. And then thirdly, the soldiers come to John and they say, what must we do? And John said three things to them. Don't take money from anyone by force. Don't accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. That's probably summing up all of these. The third one, we could, we could use one word, honesty. Don't accuse anyone falsely. See, the soldiers in the Roman world were not just fighters, they were police officers. They kept the peace. And they had with them an authority that gave them a credence, that they were trustworthy. And so, if I say, no, 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 you were speeding, you say, no, officer, I was going 30, and we go to court together, the judge is going to more likely believe me, the police officer, than you, the driver. Because there's this, this authority that comes with that. And so, they could falsely accuse someone. Listen, I saw what you did, that you were, you were trying to raise up a rebellion, but if you give me your goat, I'll forget all about it. Don't accuse anyone falsely. Be content with your wages. So here is this honesty, because it understands that you're not to lie against the truth. Don't lie against the truth. Honesty comes from the recognition that I no longer need to hide my sin. See, when you understand we're all on the same level, the ravines are filled up and the mountains and hills are brought low, and I'm only standing before the cross, that's my only justification. I don't have to hide my sin any longer. I don't have to cover up. I don't have to accuse someone else for causing... Uh, who, who did that? Well, it must be you. I, I don't need to do that. Honesty comes from the recognition I don't need to hide my sin. I can acknowledge it because I know it's covered by the sacrifice of the Messiah on my behalf. I can live in the fact, as the Apostle Paul says in Titus, that we can live in hope of the eternal life which God promised who cannot lie. I now have come into the truth. I can live in honesty. Those areas of repentance, right? Repentance needs to be an internal change that I embrace by faith. And because of what I embrace by faith, there's an external change that, that's expected. I should live this way because I've been forgiven. But lastly now, and as John concludes this section, he describes two aspects of John's baptism message. Uh, I should say it's the second aspect of John's baptism message. There's a greater baptism coming. Friends, there's a greater baptism coming. Understand this. John said, my baptism, they were thinking he was Christ. He says, no, 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 I'm just baptizing in water. This is just water. Doesn't do anything apart from internal repentance, internal change embraced by faith. He said there is one coming after him, the Messiah, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There are two baptisms that are going to come through the Messiah. 
the Holy Spirit's power and fire's judgment. That's what he describes here. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clean his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There's two baptisms. All that's in the threshing floor is going to be tossed one way or the other. It's going to be tossed, the wind's going to drive the chaff, it's going to be burned up, or the wheat's going to be taken and picked up and carried into the barn. That's it. And John said the coming Messiah was going to bring the Spirit. There's going to be a baptism of the Spirit's power. Those brought safely into the barn are given the baptism of the Holy Spirit's power in repentance and faith in the Savior. God baptizes you today. It's, it's a past event now for those who receive Christ. You're baptized with the Holy Spirit. He comes to live inside you. You need to understand and believe that and recognize that He's come into your heart. He comes, to deliver, comes into you to deliver you safely into the arms of God. You need not fear judgment. Safely into the barn. But there is a baptism of fire's judgment. John reminded the people in verse 7 that there is a wrath to come. In verse 7, he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Friends, I'll tell you right now, if you are without Christ and you understand there's a coming wrath, there's only one person who could have warned you of that. It's God. Who would go, who in their right mind would go out into the desert to listen to some guy? No one unless God was warning them. No one. See, if in your heart you're like, man, I know judgment's coming. I'm not sure if I'm ready for that. You're going to go where God tells you to go. John said, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? God warned you. If you need Christ, He's warning you right now. He's saying, you need to flee to the only one who can save you. Scripture says that God draws all people to Himself. He draws people. He's drawing you. I can say that on the basis of the Scripture. He's drawing. If you're without Him, He's drawing you to Himself. If you recognize fire's judgment is coming, it's because God revealed it to you. But this is the good news. Jesus took the baptism of fire's judgment upon Himself on the cross. He said later in Luke... In chapter 12, he said, I have a baptism with which I must be baptized, and how distressed I am until it happens. He was going to receive the baptism of fire's judgment for you that you need not endure it. The baptism of fire's judgment can be averted just like The Apollo spacecraft did not endure the fire of judgment when it came back into Earth's atmosphere. There was a heat shield on the bottom of that that took all the blazing heat of that friction of the atmosphere onto itself. 
And the occupants inside the capsule were safe. Had they said, we don't need any heat shield, they would have found out real quick how wrong they were. Jesus Christ is that heat shield to take the burning fire of God's wrath upon himself instead of you. That's the good news. He took that for you. He rose again three days later so that those who would come to him can find that turning away of the wrath of the Father. You can be safely brought into the barn. That's the truth of God's word. That's the good news. It comes about from an internal change by faith, believing it. And the Scripture says, call upon Him. Call on the Lord while He may be found. Come to Him while He is near. You can be saved from that fire. It's true. And if you need Him today, I pray as we sing, as we have this time to close our service, that you would say, I need to receive Him. Somebody will be here in the front. Somebody will come and pray with you to receive Christ as your Savior. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for this day. I thank You for Your Word and Your mercies and Your grace that's found in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, dear Father, help us. Oh, Lord, our Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's not yet been brought safely into the barn, that they would see their dire position and call upon you to be saved. They would see they are awaiting fire's judgment. Please, Father, I pray, Father, for that. I pray your work in each one here who has received you, that they would see their need to evidence an external change. It's expected. Oh, Father, please, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You please stand with me. We're going to sing grace greater than our sin. As we get ready to sing this, would you come? If you need Christ as your Savior, please, would you come? Call upon Him as we sing grace Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon As we get ready to sing that next verse, maybe you've been saved. You're here, but you hear John's words that you ought to live in generosity. You ought to live in contentment. You ought to live in honesty. Maybe you say, Lord, I want to commit to being that kind of person. I want an external change worked out in my own heart because of what I've embraced in my heart. So maybe you want to come and take this time to pray, to seek God's face, or Set where you are and pray there as we get ready 
to sing that next verse. You come as we sing. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold Threaten the soul with infinite loss Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold Points to the refuge, the mighty cross Grace, grace, God's grace Grace that will pardon and cleanse within Grace, grace, God's grace Grace that is greater than all our sin We're going to sing one more verse as we do Take that time, if you need, to deal with the Lord as we sing on that third verse. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there a-flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you may be today. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. All right, we'll close in prayer. and uh, We need help taking things down, if you can, maybe about five minutes after. Um, who's directing that? Nancy is Nancy or Laura? Are you? Are you? You're direct. My wife will direct that. She'll be up here directing um, uh, how to take care of all the things that need to be moved, cleaned. Ouch! Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We love you. Thank you for your word. Bring us back this evening to hear of your own son's concern for us as his children, as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane the desire to know you and to know him, which is eternal life. We might have a personal, close, loving relationship with the God of the universe and how we are to live that out. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your mercies, and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, you're dismissed. This message is a ministry of Plainville Baptist Church, www.plainvillebaptistchurch.org.